right, we are uh, in James chapter one. Uh, we've been doing a sermon series called Grace and Truth this year as we do a survey of the New Testament. The, we're in the first chapter of each book and the last chapter of each book, except for the really short ones we'll do in one week. But uh, uh, I was thankful that James isn't in one week. It's five chapters. Uh, but I, I was like, I'm going to have a hard time getting through one chapter. Uh, and uh, as I was preparing this sermon... Um, I was like, man, th- thoughts are coming to mind, illustrations. I'm like, th- I'm ready to go for this. And Cindy said, you just preached that not too long ago. I was like, I did. <laughs> I'm like, well, if I forget that I preached it a, few, a little while ago, then I'm, uh, you, know, you may have forgotten that I preached it as well. So if I borrow from that sermon, um, I apologize for duplicating myself, but it is the same chapter. But yeah, in 2020, we went through Practical Wisdom. We went through the book of James in depth and... Um, and I commend that to you. If you read the book of James this week and preparing for next week, Peter will take us through chapter five. Um, just so much wisdom in this book. And so uh, we do have that um, sermon series available back in 2020. So I listened to it and I was like, um, which is always a weird experience listening to yourself. Um, and, uh, but I was like, <laughs> All my, it's like, oh, this is new and fresh, and this is new and fresh. And I'm like, wait a second, I already said that. So um, it was kind of funny for me in learning that. But James chapter 1 is a uh, beginning to just a, a wonderful book, uh, a convicting book. It's 108 verses, and uh, James gives us 59 commandments. Um, so there's a lot to do when you read James, and, um, and it is so focused on the practical wisdom of the faith. And so as we read through this, um, just uh, if you feel like there's just too much to, to, to take in right now that's true, we could just read James and then read it again and just read it again and, um, and still be a lot to, to pull through. Um, and, uh, but it is worth coming back to over and over and over again. So let's read the first chapter, and then uh, we'll spend some time in it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersions, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers uh, the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to death, to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sorry. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be, kind, be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's where we'll conclude our reading. So, there's a lot there. Um, and it's so good and uh, so convicting on so many levels. And he hits all kinds of aspects of our life. And uh, in, in James, I guess I, I've always been attracted to the, the practical wisdom and the ease of understanding what he's saying. Some passages you can read and be like, I don't know what's going on here. But James just tells you the way it is. It's what I appreciate about James, that he's just straightforward and tells us the way it is. Um, but in my early years trying to figure out where to spend my quiet time, my devotions in, before I found any kind of guides or recommendations, um, I would just kind of balance between three books of the Bible, Proverbs, James, and the Gospel of John. And those still become my go-to places. I love Proverbs. I love James. I love the Gospel of John. I love the whole Bible, too, but those ones I spent a lot of time, and when I was a kid, I just kind of was like, okay, I finished Proverbs. Where do I go next? I don't know. James. And then I'd read James, and I, where do I go next? And John. And I just kind of flow through those, and because um, and I would read a different book, and I was unfamiliar, and I wanted to go something familiar. But I realized in doing so, a lot of the, the, the convictions that I have today are, you know, just come straight from Proverbs and James, the practical wisdom of how to live these out. And, and I would, can, recently someone said it this way that, I, that stood out to me, that Proverbs is, is like a practical explanation of how to live out the Ten Commandments. It's like, that, that's pretty good. Like, uh, and if we look at the Old Covenant and look at Old Testament, we're thinking like, um, here's the Ten Commandments and Proverbs is practical wisdom and living that out. And, and James is, a, is oftentimes con, compared to Proverbs, but, but James would be how to live out the Ten Commandments in light of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ in practical wisdom. Like, it's the same. Like, but there, there's a nuance here because it's written in the New Testament, because it's written after the resurrection of our Lord, that he's calling us to the obedient life in Christ. And the, the main thrust of the book is the mature believer living in obedience to Christ, how to live out our faith. And so he starts with this, uh, James, the servant of God, in the, of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he doesn't come out with that and say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. He says, I'm a servant 
of God and, and of the Lord Jesus. And he, he's recognizing his place before uh, his brother, uh, who is the risen Lord. And uh, he came to faith after the resurrection of Christ. And he, um, in that, he pursued him. Um, and actually, in the Bible, it says that Jesus met with James specifically after his resurrection. Uh, and a beautiful story there, but James became such an ardent follower of Christ that he was the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem and even nicknamed Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer that his needs became calloused and hardened um, from his activity in prayer. And James is writing to the 12 tribes uh, in the dispersion, the 12 tribes, so Jewish believers living outside of Palestine, very likely he's having in mind those who heard the gospel at the day of Pentecost, who had gathered from all over around the world uh, into Jerusalem for the Pentecost. Um, and when Peter preached and proclaimed, we see that over 3,000 people were added to the church that day, um, and then they would go back to their, their homes. Um, and uh, this in particular Greek word that he uses for the dispersion, or some translations say the spreading, is, is actually the, the sowing seed, the word for sowing seed. That the church, the, the believers who are planted all throughout the region, throughout the world, that he's writing to. And I think that is um, one, he is writing in the, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, and primarily to Jewish believers, uh, but with implications that follow to all believers of Jesus Christ. But this truth that wherever we are, we're, we're scattered, we're spread, we're seeds that are supposed to be growing uh, life in, in the communities that we are. And this is the encouragement to those because they're scattered into a pagan world, into a culture that doesn't belong to them where um, they're rejected by the society and the culture because they're Jewish believers and they're also rejected by the Jews because they're Christians. And so they're like in this place of trial and persecution and outcast. And, uh, and so he's writing to these people, how do you be mature when you're faced with these various trials? And so um, <clears throat> I thought really to, to kind of get into what he's going through, and we won't have time to, to spend on all these portions here, but I, I wanted to start with a question first, like, um, are you in the family? Uh, are you in the family? He's writing here to brothers and sisters in the Lord, those who are believers. And, and the one thing about the book of James throughout history, there's been conflict of like, does James fit in the Bible? Should it be there? Because Paul writes that we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. Um, and Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith um, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? So it's not of works, it's a by faith that we are saved. But James writes, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. Or in chapter two, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And, and, uh, and so we hear James saying, works, works. Do, do good, be, um, be a doer, work. And how does this con conflict with what Paul says? And, um, and it's interesting listening to some of the, the arguments on it, but I believe James wrote long before Paul wrote, 20 years possibly before uh, some of Pauline epistles were being written. And, uh, and he's writing, like I said, one of the early books, and he's writing primarily to Jewish people who understand um, the, the importance of obedience 
uh, of living out the faith. The works here, the word for works isn't a word to earn your salvation. It is to apply what you know. It is the importance of how do I live out in obedience to the truth that I adhere to. And so this is a, a key thing. So, um, so I wanted to just kind of look through James and say James presents the gospel. He doesn't start the book the way, maybe the way I would, would say, hey, let's make sure you know who Jesus is. You know that he went to the cross and shed his blood, that he was buried, that he rose again. And if you believe in him, this is what you should do. Paul oftentimes would do that. When we open his books, he would start with three chapters of man look how amazing God is now that we fix our eyes on who he is you should do this that's that's kind of Paul's recipe here James just jumps into it and says uh, like you need to count it all joy so um briefly in in verses 26 and 27 he kind of gives us an overarching theme. This is what pure religion is. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans, widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So three things that picture pure religion. Bridle or control your tongue. Care for the orphans and widows. or Care for the less fortunate and keep yourself unstained from the world. Um, and uh, oftentimes when I'm teaching the youth group, I will say something like this. If you want to stand out in our culture today, uh, have purity in your relationships and purity in your talk, and people will notice that you're different. And I should now need to add and take care of the orphans and widows, but do good things like care for people and uh, serve people, right? This is, this, is his, this is pure religion is what he's saying. The problem is, is we fail at all three, and he unpacks that later. We cannot tame our tongue. In chapter three, verse eight says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Okay, so uh, I'm stuck here. Okay, and then um, we give lip service to caring for people, but don't do anything about it, is what he says in chapter two, 15 through 17, says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's saying, um, the less fortunate is right before you and you just say, be blessed, God loves you, and you move on. Like that's, we're, we're, that's not pure religion. And then <clears throat> we're supposed to keep ourselves unstained from the world, but we fight because our hearts are stained with friendship of this world. James 4, 1 through 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what he's doing here is he's saying, we're all uh, struggling here. We're, same thing, we come to the Ten Commandments. We can't keep these. We are guilty of breaking the law. He says it this way in verse 10 of chapter 2. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. So we, are, we stand condemned, we stand guilty, we stand separated from God. But God intervenes. James 4, 6, but God gives 
more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he's given us a, a key here. God gives grace, unmerited favor. Favor we do not deserve nor can we earn. And we know, based on what he began that on uh, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about Jesus Christ, that God entered into this world and he lived a perfect life and went to the cross on our behalf, shedding his blood to pay our sin debt and then rising again, conquering sin and death and inviting any of us into a relationship with him who humbles themselves. So this is, this is key. It says, God opposes the proud, those who think I can do this on my own. I can make my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I can earn favor and we can't instead grace comes to the humble those whose posture says i can't do this i don't deserve this i need a savior i need jesus christ and so the grace of god follows right after that in james chapter 4 verse 6 it says god gives more grace but 7 submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So when we have an understanding of the grace of God and the goodness of God, that our response and humility should be, I'm gonna submit myself to God's way. That's a repentance comes in, that my way is wrong, God's way is right, that I need to learn repentance and I need to respond in faith to that and why because the God we believe in um, is a God who is every good and perfect gift that comes down from above that he um, of his own will in verse 18 of chapter 1 says God of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be able to be a kind of first fruits of his creature creatures sorry keep struggling with that word today um, but he called us he um, brought us to life through the word of truth and then he asks us to, to put off and put on. And James chapter 121 says, Therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. As we come to faith in Christ and we re seek repentance and we believe in who God is, the Father of lights, uh, uh, and the, the one who is the Redeemer who pursued us, that we want to put off our sinful habits and put on the newness of life, but it's called the implanted word. And, uh, and Paul said it this way in Romans 1, 16. So when, let me go back here. In, in verse 21 it says, that receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This word able is a, uh, is a powerful word. Uh, dunamis, and it's also the same word that Paul uses in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Uh, the power of God to salvation. The implanted word, the gospel of Christ, is what can change us, that comes into our hearts and transforms our lives and, uh, and brings us to salvation. And so we need the implanted word. Paul also says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we hear the word of God and we listen to it and we allow it to come in and plant it into our hearts, into our minds, and then it will spring forth life. It will save our souls. And, uh, and so this is what the gospel is, that faith in Christ produces righteousness and, uh, and we need to come to him and understand that it is by grace and faith in him James says in 
chapter 223 that says the scripture was fulfilled saying Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Again, James is not opposed to faith and belief, but he is taking us to if you believe, how should you live? And so we need to ask in faith, knowing uh, that faith is at the core of who we are as a Christian people, that faith in Christ and our faith will be tested. So we come to, are you in the family? If you're in the family, then James is jumping right into telling you how you should process this world and live in this life. Uh, If you are like, I don't know what to do with Jesus. I'm not sure if I'm truly a believer. Like we wanna step back and say, you can't just apply James and expect to, to go to heaven. Like that's not what James is saying. Uh, He wants you to know that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and that we need to place our faith in him, submitting to him, and finding that in in doing so, he will lift us up, he will save us, and he will change us. So if you're in the family, then the question is, are you maturing in your understanding? So now we'll just kind of jump back into chapter one and look at some of the things it says about our faith and our maturing in faith. Now, first I want to say, like, as you go through uh, chapter one, James wants you to have an, a proper understanding of God. Uh, and he, he cautions you, if you don't have a proper understanding of God, don't expect to receive the favor of God. Uh, you're, you're, most of your problems are based in the fact that you don't understand God properly or you don't trust God properly. And so at the root of sin is this misunderstanding and so God here, and I'll just kind of list a few things um, in the verses they come in, but one, we see he's a generous God. In verse five, he's faithful to his promises and a rewarder of the faithful. In verse 12, he's holy and cannot be tempted by evil. In verse 13, he's the father of lights. In verse 17, now father of lights is referring to uh, God as creator. He's the creator. He created the lights in the skies. He's the, um, and, um, and so, and then there's no variation or shadow due to change in verse 17. He's the God who uh, is a redeemer. He willed us to be saved in verse 18. Uh, and then he provided a means of salvation also in verse 18 in the implanted word of God. Um, and then he's the father. Again, he's a relational God, verse 27. So when we come to God, he's listing out several attributes and qualities of God that we need to, to hold to. Um, but when we look at a couple of the verses, we see that um, in verse six, it says, don't doubt. Now, doubting here is not, um, he's talking about when you don't trust the characteristics of God. Like if you're going to ask God to provide something for you, but you're like, God really won't do that. It's an unwavering, like when you're questioning uh, who God is. Um, it's, uh, he's not saying that you shouldn't ask questions and grow in your faith. And I said it before, if you have doubts about the faith and you have doubts about your beliefs or why you believe what you believe, like that's okay, let's talk about that. Let's engage the conversation. God is not afraid of questions and here he's not saying don't ask questions about why you believe uh, what you believe. Uh, Doubt itself implies a form of belief um, and so you you have to have belief first before you can doubt it. Otherwise, it's just disbelief. So when you're doubting it, is you're questioning it, examining it, and you want to examine it, and you want to work through it. And the more you do that, the more you'll find God has answers for those questions, and he builds a stronger, deeper, richer, fuller faith by going through doubts. And um, there was a time, um, even 
uh, when I was uh, here as a youth pastor, I was teaching upstairs in the youth room one night, and, uh, and I'm teaching a lesson, and this question comes into my head while I'm teaching, do you really believe this? And I'm like, whoa, wait a second, what, why, why am I asking this question now? Do you believe this? And throughout, like, I have to like work through a lesson in front of the teens, and in my head, I'm working through the why, why do you believe this? Do you really... And, um, and it, it shook me now because I had already gone through school and seminary and already been serving as a youth pastor for a few years. And then all of a sudden I had this question, this doubt come in. And, um, and I, I call it now like a moment of clarity. It was a question of, was I just receiving something because that's the way I've been taught? And now I'm, I've been taught it, and so therefore I'm gonna teach somebody else that. And I had to ask myself, is that the only reason I hold to this? And I had to dig deep and I had to pursue study and, uh, and to be affirmed. It's like, no, this, this is what I believe. I, like, I hold this and I believe this and it, it built a confidence in me um, in my faith because I engaged it. Now, in doing so, when you have doubts, don't give your doubts more credit than they deserve, okay? Uh, Tim Keller reminds us uh, a lot about this is that sometimes we hold to something for... Uh, and then we have a new thought and give our new thought more power than the, the old because it's new and it's, it must be real. And it's like, let's put the same scrutiny to the new thought as we put the old thought. Like, um, let's try to work through it. Don't just say because I have a doubt that that has to be true. No, let's attack that a little bit. Let's tease that out and work through it. And if you want help with that, I'd love to talk to you. Um, and so I, I love working through this. So, it says, not doubting. Then in verse 16, it says, do not be deceived. And then in verse 22, it says, deceiving your own selves. And then in 26, he says, but deceives his heart. Like deception is a big deal to James. Like when we allow misunderstandings of the faith to live in our hearts and misunderstandings about God, we will not understand how to live. We won't be living out the faith. We won't be living in the power that God has provided in his spirit. We will be enacting um, man, uh, man-made wisdom uh, in our own, and then we recreate God into our own image. So are you maturing in your understanding of God? And then are you maturing in your understanding of trials and temptation? A big, big part of chapter one. So he says, be joyful for what they produce. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So this, then when you encounter trials of various kinds, um, I was reminded that it was on my mission trip to Dominican Republic that I was sick for seven of the 10 days we were there and I was miserable and I did what I already told you I to do. When I don't know where to go in the Bible, I just open up to the book of James and thinking God's gonna give me encouragement. And the first thing I read is count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And I'm like, how can I be joyful? I have a fever. I'm in a third world country. Uh, I'm miserable. And, um, and, and yet he doesn't say count it joy that you're miserable or that the trial, uh, the, the pain is happening or the suffering is happening. He says count it joy knowing what it will produce in you. That your suffering, your trial has meaning, it has purpose because God is at work. And when you turn to him in your struggle, in your pain, he is going to work something out in you that is far greater than you can imagine even if you escaped that, that sickness, that pain, that, that trial. And so you've got to know the purpose. Be joyful for what the trial will produce in you. 
because they're opportunities for growth. Steadfastness will only come through persevering through adversity. Like you're just not going to wake up day and uh, wake up one day and like, all right, I'm steadfast, I'm immovable, I'm 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 good to go. Like you have to you have to learn that. You have to build a muscle memory. You have to retain that. And he's saying that steadfastness leads to perfect and completeness, which means to be mature. That learning to be mature in the faith is that you're not going to get tossed to and fro by when things come up. But you're going to have to be tossed to and fro a few times before you start to realize, wait a second, I'm tethered to an anchor. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's not going to let me go. That I can trust him in this storm. That I can get out of the boat and keep my eyes fixed on him. I'm going to float on water because he's Jesus, and I get my eyes on him. But when I look at everything else, I'm going to get tossed, and I'm going to fall. And then we have to cry out like Peter did and says, Lord, help me, and he saves us. So we need to be mature in our view of trials and temptations. There is a reward for the faithful overcomers, is what we see here as well, um, where he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast on trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who loved him. And a beautiful picture here of a reward. But also, be mature on our view of temptation. Now, God here, we see, does not tempt anyone with evil. He can't be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. He does leave us, lead us into trials to test our faith. Um, and oftentimes a trial uh, is, will be, and a temptation are very similar. It's, very, it's a similar word choice here, but it, um, what happens next is what determines whether it was a trial or a temptation. So a trial by God is an opportunity for us to show growth in our faith. It's an opportunity for our exercise, our dependence on the Holy Spirit um, and our victory in Christ. A temptation is something that leads us towards sin. So if it's something that is causing you to think sinfully, that's, that's not of God. Um, and we can't blame God. Can't say God made me do this. God didn't lead us to sin. Um, God does not sin. So he says here, so let no one say when he is tempted I'm being tempted of God for God cannot be tempted with evil he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and when when sin is fully grown it brings forth death so temptation does not come from God and James says temptation does not come from Satan Um, so stop saying the devil made me do it God didn't make you do it, and the devil didn't make you do it. He says, sin comes from our own evil desires. Now, we do have an enemy of our souls and a demonic spiritual forces that are trying to get us to focus on our own earthly desires, our earthly passions. And, and so they do bring things across our path, and they do try to um, bring those things in. But it's only a temptation to us because of what's going on in here, because I have a sin problem, and I need to surrender that to God. So it comes from within, from our evil hearts. Um, And we have to be careful about it. Now, I've shared this before, but I'm going to again just because I think it's fun. Uh, I think Taco Bell in my adulthood is like a good illustration of sin. I've shared this, right? But it is like, uh, and then I was adding to it a little bit too, so those who know what's coming. But uh, when I was in my youth, it didn't seem that way because I would eat it all the time and get away with it, and it was fine. But, uh, you know, 
having eaten Taco Bell, there's times I'm just kind of thinking, like, Taco Bell sounds really good right now. I'm like, no, it's unhealthy. I shouldn't eat that. Um, but it's cheap, and it's readily available. No, let's not have it. And I could just drive past it on my way home. There's a Whole Foods. There's a lot of healthy options there. Just go home. But the more I think about it, the more it seems like a good idea. And I start to dwell on it. And I start to remember what it tastes like. And this is going to be good. So I'm driving by anyways. Might as well pull in and make place an order. And the whole time, even up to the order, I should, should I choose a healthier option or that burrito that's really good? No. And I kind of go back and forth. And then I decide to land on whatever I order. And uh, I'm then it's like, this is good. This is going to be a good time. I'm going to enjoy this. Then I order that. And I pay for it, and I get it, and I, I'm excited for it. But then one thing I noticed is that um, it doesn't taste the way I remembered it tasted. It's just not as good. I mean, in my head, it, it was so good. But this, this isn't that great. But I'm going to eat it anyways. And I keep eating it. And I'm like, okay, we got through that. It was pretty good. And then shortly thereafter, pain and suffering ensues, followed by remorse and a promise to never do that again. And, uh, and so it is this kind of this walk through our sin areas and our understanding of what it means to be lured away and enticed by our desires. Any appetite we might have can become an enticement uh, and, a, and lure us away if we allow our thoughts to dwell on it. And so we have to be careful of knowing ourselves, knowing our proclivities towards sin and how can we avoid that even if I need to then circumvent East Market, West Market at that point and go down Frank so I can get away from Taco Bell. Like that would be better to avoid Taco Bell than to give in to eat it, right? So this is what we need to do when we see temptation is coming from inside. I know myself and, uh, and I need to surrender it to Christ. Trials give us an opportunity to show our faith. Temptations are when we fail the test and lead to sin. And then lastly, as we're wrapping up here, are you maturing in your obedience? So are you in the family are you maturing in your understanding of who God is and the spiritual warfare that we live in, these temptations and trials? And when we get those things in the right place, then we let's like start talking about how we live it out, our obedience. Um, in 19 through 21, we're just going to walk through the last parts of this chapter, but it says, Know this, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So <clears throat> I thought about, um, at times, writing a book on anger, and I just wanted to call it Stop Yelling. <laughs> Stop Yelling. It doesn't matter if I'm driving in my car, going down the road, and I look at the car next to me, I see someone yelling. If I'm coaching at a game, I'm looking at the other coach yelling at his players, or uh, parents yelling at refs or whatever it might be like I'm seeing yelling everywhere and uh, and the thing is you know yelling can be effective and is necessary at times correct right we all need to like but if we yell all the time it lose its impact um, and the thing is is when we yell we're and we use this anger this quick to anger and and uh, we begin to set a pattern for those around us of expectation or even that they begin to pick up and do themselves and it becomes this cycle um, that yelling and anger is not a healthy way to work through things here james says be quick to hear some say it this way god gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason listen twice as much as you talk we need to hear what's going on how often do I hear something and begin to react or respond to it with incomplete information because I didn't hear everything. I heard, the, I heard what sets me off and then I'm going. 
right? He says, be uh, quick to hear, slow to speak. Um, this part I enjoy because I, I like to be slow to speak. I, I like to work through things in my head and, and sometimes I'm way too slow at speaking. But we need to, um, that also keeps us out of danger. So, and slow to anger. Uh, if you find that you have a short fuse, uh, I would encourage you to repent of it and ask God to do a work and give you patience. I'm one who has had a short fuse in my life. And I've shared this before as well, but um, in my late teenage years or early college years, I, I was just angry all the time for no apparent reason. I have parents who love me. I have a good family. I had a uh, good education, and I raised in Christian church, and I, I went to Christian schools. I had all kinds. I was surrounded by Christian people, but for some reason, I chose to be angry, and I would dwell on it. I let it fester, and then I would just spark at any moment. And then I would, I would just cast it off as, oh, that's just my Irish roots. Like I just try to dismiss it because I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to look into the mirror of the word of God and say, Brad, you're angry and you shouldn't be. Like that's, that's wrong. Um, and so I had to repent of it because man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God, he says. Be suspect of your anger. Some of us like to get angry and be like, I'm righteous in my anger. It's righteous indignation, right? Like I got this, right? Be suspect of your anger. Like it does not produce the righteousness of God. There are things to be angry about, um, but in the way we respond to those things, when we respond in anger, most of the time we're sinning. And uh, that's, that's tough. That's tough for me to work through. It's still tough at times. Like, how do we process our anger? It says here, to receive the implanted word which has the power to transform your angry heart. This dunamis, the power of God's word can transform even the angriest of souls. God's word is readily available if we receive it and allow it to come in and to grow into life. And it bring peace. He will bring harmony and he will work through you. But we have to humble ourselves, submit to God and receive his word. And uh, uh, for me, it was a, a time when I walked out, I was just completely embarrassed by my own temper. And I was just, you know, I had to, I stormed out and I, I, in defiance and I acted prideful as I left, but as soon as I left, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, Brad, you're an embarrassment. That is so silly. And, um, and so I did a, a lot of work with God on that and praise God, he's delivered me and rescued me from that particular struggle. And thankfully he's still working on me and continues to work on me until we arrive in heaven one day. And then, <clears throat> are you maturing in your obedience um, in 22 through 25 it says but be doers of the word not hearers only deceiving your, yourself um, here James a, a Jewish believer raised in uh, Jewish tradition and writing to the Jewish believers is calling um, these early believers to something very similar to the Shema or the Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9. We'll just read verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Shema is the word to hear in Hebrew. Shema has, it also is the word for obey. Uh, and so the understanding of Shema is to hear and obey. There is no hearing without obedience. If you're not obeying, you haven't heard. Um, and, and so this concept of I need to hear the word of God and receive it and let it work out in me. 
is, is what he's getting at. So going to church is good. Listening to sermons is good. Listening to Christian music is good. But what are you applying to your life? How has that message changed your life? How has your devotions changed your life? What are you living out? And I do contend that the more you invest yourself into uh, godly teaching and uh, godly music and, and, and fill your mind with godly things, uh, there will be things that just begin to grow out of you. But there's times where we have to say, wait a second, I need to work on that. And I need to go home and throughout the week I need to call that verse up and I need to uh, meditate on it. I need to seek accountability on it. I might need to get counsel about it. I need to work these things out um, because just listening isn't sufficient for the believer. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe he gave himself for you and he rose from the dead and he calls you to follow him and live in victory, then live in victory. Live in obedience. Live it out. So we need to move from just information gathering to heart transformation, to life transformation. So, see, the thing is this, is that um, sin starts easy, but it will always end very hard. It always ends in death, right? Very easy to start. But obedience is very hard to, at the beginning, but it gets easier as you practice faithfulness and you persevere through and obedience always leads to blessing. Proverbs 3, 5, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. <clears throat> and, um, and so we need to come to him. And even in that, and, um, and, and the scriptural desire for you to, to lean into, to obey, and to trust God on a daily basis. The the idea of leading and directing your path, it's not like he shows you the blueprints of your life, it's he shows you the next step, and then the next step, and the next step. And you can trust him as the faithful shepherd who will lead us and guide us one step at a time, one day at a time, one meal at a time. That's what he's calling us to daily dependence, as we sang about, I depend upon you. Daily dependence and life transformation. And then the last point is, um, when we look at what religion, what are you maturing your obedience in pure religion? Now, today we live in a day and age where people don't like to use the term religion or they refer to comparing cultural religions or world religions. And then within the Christian circle, um, we don't want to just be one of the other religions. So we'll oftentimes say stuff like, we're not a religion, we're a relationship. But then James says there's pure religion. So like, how do we uh, uh, use our language to... Um, to be accurate with the Bible. So in one sense, religion, if you're looking at religion as a way to work your way to God, to bind yourself to God, um, that's not what we're talking about. That's, uh, he's talking about the religion as in the, the life of the faithful. Um, and that's what religion means here, that the life of the faithful is lived out in these three things that we talked about, controlling your speech, treating others with respect, and keeping on staying from the world, not conforming to the pattern of this world. Um, <clears throat> you know, in chapter three, he's gonna take a deep dive into the tongue and, and our words and our speech and how we use it. Uh, and here, but here he just says it very straightforward, provocatively, like, if you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive yourself. Um, that your faith in Christ should change the way you talk. You should be learning uh, to avoid it. And so 
Um, it's, a, it's an issue that I, I tend to run into a lot because I've come to conviction early in my life that um, filthy language and swearing and stuff should not be a part of my vocabulary as a Christian. And I work with a lot of young people at time, and I went through this phase, and I work with a lot of guys who go through this phase that when there's just, swear words are just a cultural thing. They don't really matter. They're kind of funny, actually, so let's just say them and laugh at them. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. But, um, and I, I had went through a season where I had a, a favorite word or two that I would just say occasionally until God brought conviction and said, um, you know, oftentimes it was when I was with my Christian friends that I'd be like, oh, these are funny, and go banter back and forth. But I don't know who can hear me. I don't know the ripple effect. And, I, and so I wanted to be careful with that, and I began to learn that I have to restrain or rein in my tongue. And one of the reasons I believe that is because James tells us point blank, and, and then you read through Proverbs, it talks about our tongue. And it's so important uh, in that. And then one summer I was working at a, um, the Stowe Street Department for the summer, and uh, we were working, it was towards the end of the summer, I was working on the, right by a horse farm, we were paving the road, and I said, this horse poop really stinks. And the guy thought I said the other word. And, uh, and he's like, oh, you said it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you just swore. And I'm like, I, I didn't swear. I, he goes, you did. And I'm like, well, even if I did, what does it matter? And he's like, you don't swear. I've been watching you all summer long, and you have not once said a swear word. So I finally caught you. And I was just like, I was taken aback that like somebody paid attention to my vocabulary and, and I was just being me. I didn't, I wasn't trying to go out and demonstrate that I don't swear, but I was just living out my faith in such a way that he saw something different and it led to a good conversation. And that's why I tell uh, the youth group those two things um, that if you wanna be, if you wanna stand out in this world, purity in your relationships and purity in your vocabulary uh, will leave a huge impact. Paul says it this way, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Again, the transformation, not, not being conformed to the pattern of this world. We live in a day and age where people are calling themselves Christians and writing books and preaching sermons and doing all kinds of stuff and telling us that all kinds of stuff that's not biblical is Christian. And they're redefining what sin is, and they're redefining what it means to be a follower of Christ. And as a matter of fact, mostly they leave Christ out of it and just said, be good moral people, and, uh, and they're redefining it. And that's not what Christ calls us to. That's not what James, James doesn't give us permission to do that. We can't read the book of James and say, I can do whatever the culture does. If we're more concerned with how our Heavenly Father views us and the reward that he's gonna give us in our faithfulness than we are about the people that um, about how people think about us on TikTok or on, on Instagram or in our neighborhood. Like, um, what if someone doesn't like what I say because I follow Christ? Um, Jesus said they'll hate you because they hated him. All right? he's, he's called us to a life of holiness, of perseverance, of steadfastness, of mature Christian obedience. And if we're in the family, we ought to be pursuing a mature Christian obedience through proper understanding. I just talked to a friend of mine today who, uh, not today, just um, on Friday, who, who has just a, a real burden for his friends that are walking away from, from the faith. People who grew up in church and now reject the church and reject Christ. And he posted an impassioned plea to, hey, Jesus is king. Like, you need to know him. And it was... As I read through it, doctrinally, he, you know, he didn't say anything wrong. Um, 
I did say like the way you post, sometimes you should see, is this gonna invite into a conversation or just be a thread killer? So if you're just spitting to say, hey, I'm right, boom, you're wrong, you probably will get angry responses. <laughs> but learning how to say, hey, let's talk about this um, is, is, is oftentimes a, a better approach. But in talking to him, his desires, like I want people to see Jesus and I want them to know the hope that we have because this world is falling apart and the times are, are, are changing and, and Jesus might come back soon, like, and this is how he's talking. I'm like, you know what, you're right. Like we need to call people to repentance. We need to call um, people to know who Jesus is to the, the gospel. And the thing is, is it, it starts in the family. It starts with, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a, a true follower of Christ, that we need to start with the repentance here. And as we live out our faith and mature understanding of who God is and what trials are, and we, as we mature in our obedience in our daily lives, people will see Christ in us and in our community, and they will want what we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your servant James, who writes a very provocative book, calling us and challenging us to obedience. Lord, I just uh, realize, even as I go through this myself, um, how many times I fall short, how many times I fail. Um, Lord, how I allow misunderstandings to cloud my view of who you are and your goodness and kindness towards me and, and how I can follow my own desires and be enticed into sin. Lord, we as a people want to come together and ask your forgiveness and repentance and plead for you to give us your spirit to lead us into faithfulness, to perseverance. I thank you so much, Lord, that when your word tells us we are wrong and that we miss the point, you don't leave us there on our own, but you say you provided a way of salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that we can be a faithful people who follow you with all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.